ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замолели. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. One exciting recent trend in the study of the Soviet system is to examine the Union as a multi-ethnic empire from the perspective of its periphery. How did the Bolsheviks govern the massive Eurasian landmass, especially in ethnically diverse and culturally alien regions like Central Asia? How did they manage to conquer places like Tajikistan, maintain Soviet power there, and rule over it despite cultures? These are questions that Botokoz Kasimbekova's new book on early Soviet rule in Tajikistan seeks to uncover. Botok Kasimbekova is a research associate in the history department in Humboldt University in Berlin and author of Despite Cultures, Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Here's Botok Kasimbekova. So you begin your book, Despite Cultures, Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan, with a really interesting discussion of official Soviet language. And, and those of us who are familiar with these debates in, in Soviet history, in terms of how do we deal with official Soviet language, does it reflect identity, what do we make of it? And you, you speak about Soviet, official Soviet language in, the, in relationship to the nature of Soviet rule. So talk about this issue of language and its relationship to your understanding of early Soviet rule in Tajikistan? Well, thank you for asking this question, because that's um, uh, one of the most important observations that I made in the early stage of my research. And that shaped the way I formulated my research question later on, because uh, one of the things that struck me when I went to archives is that I noticed that there what people write was there was a certain force behind uh, people's strategy of formulating certain things about what they see if i for example looked at uh, reports from russian imperial officers they differed radically from soviet reports because uh, there was a certain work behind reporting that i couldn't understand and what i noticed is that First of all, I did not trust a lot of the things that um, I read. And the second thing was that I noticed that the higher officials in Moscow also did not trust the report. So they wrote, please don't lie or please tell us the truth. And they wanted to come to the truth. But from another side, the reporters, the people who, re who wrote reports, they had a different understanding of the truth. So what was the truth? What was communist? What was yet now the right thing to say? What was the right thing to write? What was the right thing to think and represent? This was not stable and nobody really had an answer to that. And I did not know as a historian how I should deal with this issue. And that was kind of the first layer that I saw and I sensed immediately. And I didn't know how to go about it. So I look at, at such discussions of should we trust Soviet sources, should we not trust Soviet sources? But I didn't really find answers to that because um, many of the books, they just use sources without really critically analyzing them, simply choosing, um, many historians simply choose, um, have a feeling of what they can trust and what they cannot trust, but it's not 
analyzed thoroughly. And I thought that I have to do that because I felt that there was a key in understanding the regime if you understand that politics of communication. Can, can you give an example? I mean, was it is it the class language? Is it uh, the various kind of stiff formulations in which they use to ex in in particularly in reports because of course I've encountered I encountered similar things looking at Komsomol reports the way they just the language they use to frame it and then of course there were also discussions in the press criticizing this type of language as basically like people are using these words without even knowing what their meaning is it's just kind of almost like a uh, to put it in a present context a form of political correctness Absolutely. Absolutely. There was this feeling that we need to mention class struggle. And those who did not mention class struggle, uh, they would be asked, why don't you mention class struggle? And if the answer was, well, we don't have classes here, then you're blamed not to be a communist, not having the not having this communist uh, consciousness. And uh, because a real communist will, of course, see class struggle, especially in the early Soviet period. So you were blinded or you were corrupt, you, you, are, you are hiding something. So, and although, of course, there are reports that, that are very honest, but very uh, soon uh, we see in the 1930s, especially, that everyone understand what is to be written, what should they write. But because everyone knows what should be written, what is interesting is that uh, those who read this, those reports, they know that they, they probably cannot trust it because everyone knows that there is this formula and everyone has to follow this formula, but nobody really knew what people really thought. And that was, um, and that was a struggle. Yeah, in, in a sense, too, in terms of, of what it says about the way the Soviet regime tried to run not just places as far off as Tajikistan, but even the provinces within Russia, they did have this persistent problem where on the one hand, they are demanding a certain language, but on the other hand, they highly distrust information coming from the periphery. And they have a tendency to try to you know, send out trusted individuals to check on this information and it, it's a really strange way to run a society or run a government when you can't even rely on the information you're getting. Yes, and, and that you set the tone for this information. You say that you need this information, but at the end you don't trust it. So, so, what, so how does this make you think about the way a place like Tajikistan was, was governed? Well, as you mentioned, one of the tactics, and I'm looking at my work at the tactics of rule. Uh, so one of the tactics, as you said, uh, was to send trusted individuals, individuals that you can trust fully and individuals whom you give the right to do what they think is right at this moment. So you empower them fully. And but at the same time, you allow them to improvise because the also technical communication uh, system was not connected, people were somewhere in locations where they couldn't telegraph or, and they couldn't call Moscow. So they were allowed to take decisions. But at the same time, they knew that it was their responsibility to do everything right. And that was a big problem 
because who decides at the end what is right? Because who knows what was the most right thing to do at this moment, at this particular time? So from one side, you show a lot of trust to these trusted people, responsible workers, ответственные работники. But from another side, uh, you are totally dependent on these people. And what I notice is my work, Moscow is very, Politburo is very uncomfortable being dependent on people. So, and then I look at the strategies such as quotas that are there also to control those people who you empower fully. So you, you try to control also these entrusted people. Yes, so this is kind of the connection. And, and then once you, for example, for the trusted people, for the responsible workers, when they take a decision, for example, to collaborate with certain individuals who could be described as a class enemy or a bourgeois or a nationalist, you're in trouble because you don't know what are other mechanisms. So before we get into the particulars of all this, let's start with a bit of, of back, having you give some background to Tajikistan. Uh, give an overview of um, Russian rule, which starts very late in the 1890s uh, of Tajikistan. And in particular, what happened after the collapse of the Russian Empire and the attempts of early Sovietization? Because the periodization of Soviet Tajikistan is not, say, in line with Russia in general. It's, it occurs a few years later. Yes, absolutely. And that periodization is crucial for how Soviet history is written, I think, in Tajikistan, because since Tajikistan was part of Eastern Bukhara, and it did not after the revolution, immediately after the revolution, because uh, the Bukharan Republic still had some autonomy, it did not experience these years when um, Islamic courts were closed, when hunger, they were still autonomous, they were still protected from this period of civil war. And in 1920s, when the NEAP uh, politics comes, that means also that it did not experience the Soviet rule as something that is spoken, but it was not a systematic uh, destruction of institutions and structures and killing of certain groups. So it was, it was a very chaotic period. It's very difficult to describe it also because of sources, because of lack of sources, of course. And it's a very complex and complicated picture that we have there. When in 1925 the Republic is proclaimed, Moscow knows that this is a very peripheral region that we have to be careful there. So from one side, we do have resistance. We do have Pasmachis, all kinds of different groups that are called Pasmachis. But various groups fight for different reasons and they would not be associated uh, with each other themselves if we would ask them. But of course, Soviet commanders call them all Pasmachis. So from one from one side we do have this resistance, and, but but this fact also influences this kind of very very slow process of Sovietization, and so you don't um, you don't really feel the state in this period, and we have lots and lots of co uh, concessions being made. We have the main strategy at this time in the 1920s is collaboration and resistance. Let me ask you about that, because the effort to establish Soviet control is this com combination of 
trying to co-opt locals and and compromise and accommodate and trying to convince armed rebels to you know lay down their arms and and come over to the side of the soviet regime but at the same time there is a lot of violence um, and there is an, an attempt to suppress the resistance of so-called basmachi uh, rebels how did this violence because you, you make a point of talking about violence and so how did this violence shape the form of Soviet governance in Tajikistan? Yes, violence is important, but what I'm trying to say also in my book is that collaboration was as important as violence because the Soviet commanders use violence when they feel strong enough. When they don't feel strong enough, uh, they try to collaborate. And this is what they write also in their reports. They say we would, uh, we would do it and we would probably conquer the region much quicker if we just had money, if we just had arms, if we, if we just had people, because our soldiers die because of malaria, uh, we are underfed, we don't have, um, we don't have equipment, uh, so we are forced to collaborate with those people. So they are looking at which group is fighting with which group, they are trying to ally themselves with a stronger group, and they allow the stronger group to get rid of the weaker group. So this is how they are going. They are using indirect violence, but they are signaling something very important. They're signaling if you are loyal to us and if you collaborate with us, we will protect you. And this is how they win people over because they collaborate. And in the 1920s, collaboration is as much as important as violence. But with the railway um, in 1929, things change. And then violence actually becomes the primary mode. In the 1920s, the Soviet state is still too weak to use violence as much as during the collectivization 1930s. Yeah, and we'll certainly talk about the those efforts of collectivization. But let's first talk a bit about geography, and, and particularly geography in, in of Soviet rule in Tajikistan. Because as you point out, there were parts of Tajikistan that were just totally remote and inaccessible. Um, the mail took, you know, months in some cases, if it ever uh, arrived. Moscow is incredibly far away institutions are weak and few Soviet officials actually wanted to be stationed there. And then, of course, the Tajik population itself is a multi-ethnic and also transitory migrant population. So how did the Soviet state confront the geography of Tajikistan? Well, it tried to do things that any state would do. First of all, it, it was uh, building roads. Uh, it tried to connect the territory with airways, but it, it worked only very, very slowly. It was very, very difficult to build roads. The railway to Dushanbe was certainly very, very important to have Tajikistan being accessible for Tashkent. Uh, that was uh, um, an important part of it. But resettlements, moving humans, was another strategy which, which was um, extremely important and it was of course connected to the nation state building, uh, moving uh, population groups from the mountains, from inaccessible mountains to the valleys, uh, which were much more accessible of course, was one way and it was explained through the idea of building a Tajik nation and having um, 
Tajik groups be in the in uh, these strategic valleys. It was explained that we are giving you this land as a gift, so that's why uh, you should resettle there. But also, uh, it's a, a part of collectivization. You should grow cotton because if you grow cotton, first of all, the Soviet Union will not be dependent on the U.S. First of all, and the second thing is that you will develop your culture because with um, cotton we will industrialize and if we industrialize we will all develop and plus we will probably also liberate you know other colonial subjects so from one side it was a question of territory but it was translated into the question of you know imperialism or anti-imperial struggle nation state building and also economy economy was extremely important and trust military protection of the soviet borders from the evil british empire so in, in that sense it's a it's it's a bit of a different story of the Stalin revolution, particularly of collectivization, because the Soviet Socialist Republic of Tajikistan is proclaimed in 1925, right at the beginning of Stalin's great break. And for what what you present in terms of collectivization, it is part of the general drive of collectivizing agriculture, collectivizing herding, uh, whatever agricultural labor people do. But at the same time, this is also part of concentrating the Tajik population and in order to more effectively govern over them. So talk about the story of the, the Stalin revolution and in a bit more detail in Tajikistan. In Tajikistan, it was giving a mission to a people to become global anti-colonial fighters. So it was collectivization and the new Stalin revolution was, it was portrayed as a global phenomenon. Tajiks were responsible for leading anti-colonial struggle. But at the same time, their fate was connected to the fate of industrialization because, as I said, they were asked to grow cotton. They were asked to be the vanguard of, you know, of cotton industry. But a new socialist cotton industry, they were supposed to be the good alternative to the imperialism, to the Western imperialism. One of the things that struck me was were the reports of dead bodies on the streets. We know about Kazakhs starving uh, and actually dying during the 1930s, 1930, 1931 especially. But we don't know that Tajiks also died and starved and they suffered greatly. Of course, not on the scale as Kazakhs, but they also died. And I was I was shocked when I was reading about it and I was shocked the way the Soviet officials wrote about it, that uh, some bodies are on the ground and there is nobody who could clean this up. So these are the pictures that we don't find in history books um, on Tajikistan, on that region. But yes, but the tragedy also was part of that anti-colonial struggle. And, and the thing is, that, uh, of course, why it is a Stalinist revolution is that they didn't have a choice. Because if you, if you, if you don't join a kolkhoz, of course, you're an enemy. So this anti-colonial struggle uh, was a very, very forced and deadly endeavor for the people. Um, how it developed later uh, in the 1960s and 70s, it's a different story. And we don't have a lot of memory of the 1930s and 40s, 
but I think it's a um, it's a very important part of of history that we should know about. Yeah, let, well, let's talk about some of this because there is, as you said, the you know in the 1920s attempts at Soviet rule were a lot of uh, attempts at compromise and cooptation because essentially the Soviet power is fairly weak. But into the 1930s, uh, you do, as you said, have a turn toward violence. And this violence manifests itself in very particular forms for Tajikistan, but also it's con I think it's connected to the general use of violence throughout the regime in the 1930s. And one way this was deployed is not just in collectivization, but you, you discuss some pretty pretty shocking scandals in Tajikistan involving corrupt officials who are, are engaging in rape, debauchery, and other forms of criminality. And there is an attempt to crack down on this criminality. So how does this, the, the attempts to get a handle on this related to how the Soviet Union is trying to rule over Tajikistan? Well, an important, I think, part of the scandals is the fact that the scandals are there because Soviet officials feel that they don't exercise control over these regions, and especially distanced regions. So the more distanced the regions are, the the um, the more horrible are scandals. And these are witch hunts and some kind of show trials to show everyone that we are here or that we can come here. Uh, usually these campaigns against debauchery, um, corrupt officials, they are seasonal. Officials go there when they can go, uh, when there is no snow, uh, usually in spring, when the um, these valleys are accessible. And they know they have to come, they have to find problems, they have to because they are giving quotas. They, the plan economy entered not only the agricultural or industrial field, it also entered the judicial field and political field, you have to find a certain number of enemies. And if you don't find enemies, then you, you're not a communist because you don't, you're blinded. So the procurators, they are giving statistics and they, they know how many criminals were found in Russia and they know what are approximate expectations from them are. And so they go and they, and they talk to people and they and they try to find stories that they can turn into scandals and when they can put people on trial. Uh, but an important part of all those scandals and uh, witch hunts is, is that, as I write in my book, they are accompanied by releases. So the government gives not only quotas for putting people in jail for certain acts, but also they give uh, sometimes, and they don't, they don't plan them. They just, you know, announce as amnesties are announced. You can release 2,000 people in this region because they simply need workers for their cotton fields. And if they put too many people in prisons, then, um, and that's a border region and people can go to Afghanistan. They can flee. They don't want this. They want to keep people. So that it's, um, it's a cat and mice kind of a, game and it's uh, and the whole rule is a um, try and error game you do something you you see how it works and if you're not happy you can uh, you can still improvise and so what they do is that they from one side they stage this witch hunts but they stage this witch hunts not only for the population they stage it for the soviet officials 
as well because Soviet officials have to know that they belong to the state and they always have to exercise loyalty and they have to uh, they have to exercise the state because they are the state you know they have to do something by traveling by sending reports they show also moscow that um, there is something that something is done uh, but they are also disciplined as state officials so this witch hunts and these horror stories from one side these scandals they they speak to different audiences they speak to moscow themselves then they have a feeling that we are doing something you know we we can control the situation uh, they speak to the soviet officials they think that they also speak to the population it, it's really revealing because it really shows how much they had the central authorities had no idea what was going on yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right because in a way i mean this is what arch getty always described to me as putting out fires this is essentially the the extent of their ability to control I mean, not just Tajikistan, but the entire Soviet Union to a large extent was just putting out fires and making a demonstration. And because of that, like elsewhere in the Soviet Union, you do have these, you have party purges, you have arrests, you have political infighting, and you, of course, also uh, being a, um, a republic, an ethnic republic, you have attempts to root out nationalism in Tajikistan. So to talk about this, uh, the beginning of a chaos within the political officialdom of Tajikistan in the early to mid-1930s? So if we look at purge of leaders, so the first wave, well, there are several waves, but the first kind of big um, official wave where we purge very important political leaders is in by the end of the first five-year plan. We have in 1932 and 1933. And the, this first purge differs very much from the uh, later purge, from the Great Purge, in that the first purge is addressed against local leaders. So this is the purge of the national bourgeoisie, as bourgeois opposition, um, as it is framed. And the difference there is that because the Soviet rule in the 1920s especially was collaborating with uh, strong leaders, people of authority, who they feel unnecessary in order to win over the local population, to have those um, important locals who can mobilize support or who can fight with certain groups, who they also think are the uh, local leaders and they also probably should be the leaders these people especially in tajikistan they start questioning moscow's ways of governance the, the tajik leaders especially maksum he hears about kazakhs he knows what's going on and he says well we don't want people to die here and he questions and he he talks openly and he says this is not what we wanted. Uh, he also says that to his followers, to people who believed in him, and you, I, at least I clearly see that these people definitely trusted the Soviet state, they trusted Moscow leaders, and they thought, great, maybe there is something that we can build here, maybe we can modernize um, ourselves, maybe this is the way. 
and they do everything for the Soviet state. With collectivization, with the first five-year plan, um, they question. And so the first purge in 1932-1933 in Tajikistan, the aim uh, of the first purge is to show these local leaders that they are not to decide the future of Tajikistan. So, and it, it is very interesting the way um, the purge is staged so that everyone also knows what to say. And it seems to me that the people who are purged, they also know uh, what is expected from them. So since we don't have sources, we don't really know what Stalin told Maksum because they met before the purge twice. We know that they met because um, it is recorded, but we don't know what was uh, what was going on. So Maksum is not very active during his purge. He's not really trying to defend himself. And we don't know what Stalin promised him and how he explained the purge. But the aim was to discipline them and to discipline everyone else so that people who trust Maksum throughout the country are called to Dushanbe and they are, it is explained to them that now you have to criticize him, which is totally different in 1937, of course. Yeah, let's talk about that. Go back to this issue of the wave of purges culminating in in 1937 because you you turn back to the issue of language and it's really interesting how you you frame one of your chapters as you call it an empire of liars and then when you proceed to the crescendo of 1937 you speak of it as a road to silence so, so talk about these two linguistic titles you use, you know, the empire of liars to the road of silence. How do you understand this? Empire of liars, what I mean by that is, from one side, it is a perception that Moscow has about its officials and the population. Moscow thinks that everyone lies about how much they produce, that the peasants don't want to give out uh, all the grain and all the cotton that they produced. Officials also lie about statistics, they lie about quotas. Everyone is lying. So because we cannot trust anyone, that's why we institute anonymous reporting in newspapers. And then I look at how this anonymous peasant correspondent is the person who will get to the truth and will as uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick would say, turn off the mask from all these liars who destroy the state. So an empire of liars talks about this process of trying to get to the truth, of trying to get through the through this silence or maybe through these lies that they think the population and the officials are giving them. Right, because there's this whole idea of, of the double dealer, of the masked enemy. And we have here, you know, we have all these words that are, that explain this whole condition of uh, Moscow officials not trusting neither the population nor their own officials. So, so it, uh, the title in Empire of Liars, it actually describes this state of distrust. And also, but also a mechanism of how one of the mechanisms of how the state was trying to get around this state of distrust. 
But the road to silence, it talks about, it's a, it's a different state, and that it has to do more with party leaders in Tajikistan. After the first five-year plan, they still speak and they still say what the Moscow leaders don't want to say. By 1937, uh, they don't do that. But you come to this road of silence, I mean, you, you go to that. It, it's not simply that one night they had a bad dream or they woke up and they understood, no, now the atmosphere is different, so now we should not talk about it. What I'm describing is that it took at least one year to torture people, to put them in jail, to scare people. So there was an, um, an operation, the aim of which was to make sure that people don't talk and they don't criticize and they, they don't resist. And this is what they achieved. And it's very interesting how in the early 1930s, uh, the leaders, they still talked what they wanted to say in closed party meetings not outside. Here is, we look at really uh, these closed uh, spaces. By mid or late 1930s, they don't do that. And finally, looking at the Soviet system from Tajikistan, so looking from the periphery in, and based on your study, what do we learn about Soviet rule and the nature of Soviet empire? Well, probably one of the most important things that I've learned from um, my research is that the Soviet state was a state of improvisation. It always had to look for ways to control people. It was a very, uh, the Politburo was very insecure about its rule. And this distrust of their own envoys was more destructive than anything else. And it was a very, very flexible and try-and-error uh, rule in the 1920s, especially. But it turned. You can see, you, you, you can see that it tries many different tactics. But when it tries these different tactics, rather than saying, "Okay, we made a mistake here, so now we are stronger because we learn from our mistakes," they save all these feelings of failure to radicalize uh, rather than accept them and and and, and learn from them uh, there were there is this perception that we need to be even more careful and we need to um, uh, control it more but how much you know the terror is connected to the um, international context as uh, as many historians point out that without the war maybe it would be different I would say that I think probably this internal work collectivization played a very important role for for the formation of this particular type of rule. So of course all these factors are important, but because it was a very improvisational and flexible kind of rule, it wasn't stable. Because there were no institutions, there was of course there was no this uh, checks checks and balances. So uh, this instability was itself its main enemy, so to say. And the the leaders, they were trying to overcome the shortcomings uh, that they instituted themselves. So from one side, they, they based their rule on these loyal and devout individuals. 
But at the same time, they understood that this was their shortcoming because how, how can we trust them? Why uh, should we think that what they do is right? And if we trust them and, the, and if we uh, agree with them, but they are against what we want, it doesn't work because we have to um, give up on many of our plans. So it's it's a constant struggle with itself. The state is 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 in constant is in constant struggle with its own shortcomings, and this is what I learned. And um, it's very interesting for me to see how uh, this was the case also in other parts um, of the Soviet Union. So one thing that I learned is that. Tajikistan was not an exceptional place. Of course, from one side, yes, we don't grow cotton, you know, in Ukraine. So, but the tactics of rule were the same throughout the empire, despite the differences. And I think that that is very important to understand because uh, we cannot treat Central Asia simply as colonies, uh, because this Stalinist rule, it was a rule despite cultures. Just because the cultures were different there doesn't mean that the mode of rule was different there. That was Botokos Kasimbekova, a research associate in the history department at Humboldt University in Berlin and author of Despite Cultures, Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Legs till they bleed when I force them open, searching for any port when I see the storm approaching. You ain't been-